Good afternoon. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and you've tuned in to the Living Writers Show. My guest today is two-term U.S. poet laureate Billy Collins. Collins is the author of eight collections of poetry, the most recent of which is called Trouble, The Trouble with Poetry. He's the recipient of numerous awards and prizes. Currently, the New York State Poet Laureate, Collins has been teaching poetry for the past 30 years as a distinguished professor of English at Lehman College City University of New York. Welcome. Thank you very much. I should tell you the full title of the book Please do. is The Trouble with Poetry and Other Poems. So I thought that had a little spin to it because it makes it clear it's not a set of essays. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of the poems in the book. It is, and we're going to talk a little bit about that poem okay. um, later on in the show. But let's jump right into the book. And I wonder if you'll, this is your eighth book of poems, and I heard you read about a year and a half ago in Palo Alto um, from a poem, a, a poem that's now in the book called The Lanyard. And I wonder if you'd start us out with that one. Sure, The Lanyard. The other day, as I was ricocheting slowly off the pale blue walls of this room, bouncing from typewriter to piano, from bookshelf to an envelope lying on the floor, I found myself in the L section of the dictionary, where my eyes fell upon the word lanyard. No cookie nibbled by a French novelist could send one more suddenly into the past, a past where I sat at a workbench at a camp by a deep Adirondack lake, learning how to braid thin plastic strips into a lanyard, a gift for my mother. I had never seen anyone use a lanyard or wear one, if that's what you did with them. But that did not keep me from crossing strand over strand again and again until I had made a boxy red and white lanyard for my mother. She gave me life and milk from her breasts, and I gave her a lanyard. She nursed me in many a sick room, lifted teaspoons of medicine to my lips, set cold face cloths on my forehead, and then led me out into the airy light and taught me to walk and swim, and I, in turn, presented her with a lanyard. Here are thousands of meals, she said, and here is clothing and a good education. And here is your lanyard, I replied, which I made with a little help from a counselor. Here is a breathing body and a beating heart, strong legs, bones, and teeth, and two clear eyes to read the world, she whispered. And here, I said, is the lanyard I made at camp. And here, I wish to say to her now, is a smaller gift, not the archaic truth that you can never repay your mother, but the rueful admission that when she took the two-tone lanyard from my hands, I was as sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom would be enough to make us even. Thank you. It's a treat to hear you read it um, for the second time. And when you were reading, this was at Stanford University that you were reading when I first heard that poem, to a a 450-seat house, and it was packed. And um, after every single poem you read, there was applause. And then at the end of the reading, there was a standing ovation. I've never seen anything like that at a literary event. It was was really wonderful. And I wonder if um, you could talk about this sort of... um, 
I want to call it the rock star phenomenon of, of poetry. It's it's not what we normally see in the poetry world. And sort of what happened in that auditorium that doesn't normally happen in in, in a poetry readings? Well, I don't know how to account for it. I mean, uh, I think uh, early on, I my you know I'd go, I'd give a reading that was. Um, attended by a handful of people. Uh, the whole idea, as someone said, is to, if you can be outnumbered, it's a good start. Um, I'm not really sure. I, I really don't write for performance. I write for, um, I write in silence, and um, I'm hoping that the poem will um, will travel on the page into someone else's room and that they will read the poem in silence. And there will be a kind of little verbal bridge between these two silences. And that's what I'm thinking about when I'm writing, um, among other things. So being uh, in front of a crowd of people at a podium is not the uh, the aim of it. You know, it's, it's fun to do, and I, I, I like uh, giving public readings. But um, it's like seeing this one reader suddenly multiplied by 450. Um, I read much better in auditoriums where the lights are out, you know, where you can't see anybody. Can't see your folks. <laughs> no, um, and you just assume they're still out there. But. Well, th- in this particular room, they were definitely out there and and having the best time I've ever seen anyone have at a literary event. It was it was quite an amazing experience, both to hear you read and to experience this kind of. Um, enthusiasm for mm-hmm. the written word as spoken, but intended to be read as opposed to read out loud. So. Well, I think um, I met W.S. Merwin this summer, and uh, after I got over the intimidation of that experience, uh, we uh, talked, and I listened to him give a talk. And I mean, he was saying that one way to understand a poem is to read it out loud, uh, or to read it two or three times out loud. And if you don't understand the poem, reading it out loud is not going to move you into or provide you with a complete, really rational grasp of the poem where you can then sit down and write a term paper about it. But you will understand it better after you've read it one or two times. Something, the sound of it will will come in and, and, and get below the skin and into the ear and... Uh, so I think reading poems out loud is not only, um, you know, people talk about returning to the oral roots of poetry and all that, which sounds a little elevated, but I think it does, it is a clarifying experience. And sometimes I know with, um, uh, when I first saw Charles Simic read, uh, before that I thought his poems, and I still do in some way, were very dark and very gothic and always taking place in these um, uh, these sort of uh, Eastern European cities at night. And uh, when I heard him read, uh, I could see that there was a lot more humor in his poetry than I thought there was. You know, dark kind of Samuel <laughs> Beckett kind of humor, but humor nonetheless. Um, so uh, there might be that uh, difference between the page and listening to a poem and performance. That. Well, I wonder if you'd read another one for us. Um, if you read also from the, your most recent book, which according to the press releases is out October 25th, so we've got a, an advanced copy, I imagine. Good, it's supposed to be out on. this week, yeah. Um, if you'd read the trouble, um, the, sorry, theme for us. Uh, the, the poem called Theme? Yeah. Okay. Well, this is, a lot of these poems are, I would say, are kind of English major poems because... Um, there's a lot of cl- a lot of the classroom discussion of literature kind of leaks into them, and this is probably one of them. You know, someone said that there are, you know there are very few ideas you can write about. There are just a handful of human themes. I think Willa Cather 
talking about fiction said that there are only maybe three or four human stories, but we keep telling them as desperately as if they've ne- we've never heard them before. But this is kind of a takeoff on the idea of, of finding the theme. And that was always you know, a question in poetry that mystified me as a student because you know the teacher would say, well, what's the theme here? I didn't know what a theme was to begin with. Then I found out what themes were. And um, then I could guess. So they say, what the, what's the theme? And I would say, um, I know, the search for the father. And he'd say, well, no, but at least, you know, I demonstrated I knew what a theme was. So Theme. It's a sunny weekday in early May. And after a ham sandwich and a cold bottle of beer on the brick terrace, I am consumed by the wish to add something to one of the ancient themes. Youth dancing with his eyes closed, for example, in the shadows of corruption and death, or the rise and fall of illustrious men strapped to the turning wheel of mischance and disaster. There is a slight breeze, just enough to bend the yellow tulips on their stems, but that hardly helps me echo the longing for immortality despite the roaring juggernaut of time, or the painful motif of nature's cyclical return versus man's blind rush to the grave. I could loosen my shirt and lie down in the soft grass, sweet now after its first cutting, but that would not produce a record of the pursuit of the moth of eternal beauty or the despondency that attends the eventual dribble of the once gurgling fountains of creativity. So, as far as the great topics go, that seems to leave only the fall from exuberant maturity into sudden headlong decline, a subject that fills me with silence and leaves me with no choice but to spend the rest of the day sniffing the jasmine vine and surrendering to the ivory governance of the piano by picking out with my index finger the melody notes of Easy to Love, a song in which Cole Porter expresses with put-on nonchalance the hopelessness of a love brimming with desire and a hunger for affection, but met only and always with frosty disregard. It strikes me that's a very long sentence. <laughs> <laughs> well, as with um, much of your work in this new book, The Trouble with Poetry and Other Poems, um, you give us, you give readers a lot of the stuff of day-to-day, either through musings or through observations, uh, what's outside the window. Um, and as with the lanyard, you often bring this sense of wry humor to your work. In this poem, I find something, and in some of the other poems in the book, like um, The Order of the Day and Breathless and the Reaper, I find some themes that I don't find so much in some of your earlier books. They have to do with what you've called um, exuberant maturity in, um, the, in this poem theme and death in some of those other poems I just mentioned. And I'm wondering what it's like to have written and be writing this book and, and the work that you're doing now versus the work you were doing when you were starting out. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't, it's hard, you know, getting a writer to just to step back from this for a minute, but, and not to subvert the interview at all, but, um, but getting a writer to talk about his or her own work. I was thinking about this this morning. It's a little like trying to get a dog interested in looking in the mirror. You know, they, they're, parakeets will peck at the mirror, but dogs just don't get it. They don't get their own reflection because they sniff things out. And I think um, 
um, writing involves one part of the brain and talking about it involves another one. So this kind of self-regard is not something I think much about. I I don't think there's too much of a change, to tell you the truth. I mean, I find that um, maybe I'm just not observing it that carefully or thinking about it. But there are really, I mean, speaking of themes, there are just these... You know, there's one theme in poetry, really, and the theme is death. Um, if you're majoring in English, you're majoring in death. And they should, they should tell you about that. You know? Right at the start. Yeah, they should make maybe sociology. I just want you to know that you're going to be basically reading and talking about mortality for the next four years or whatever. Um, <laughs> so that's always there. I mean, death is what gets poets up in the morning. It's our, it's our thing. You know, it's it's what we we're always writing about, so that's always there. And it's um, but um, to be less you know um, jokey about it. I mean, death is the sort of the lens you know through which you see life. Um, and once seen uh, through that lens, then usually things become much more vivid. And people tend to experience this after maybe the death of a relative or a brush with death. That um, it tends to uh, the idea of mortality tends to italicize life, italicize experience. And that leads to this idea of attention to detail that you kind of mentioned before. Um, getting to see that the stuff around us, right, the pencil and the earring and the tulip uh, and the car tire or whatever, that these are apertures really into broader realms and that the big stuff cannot be approached directly, I mean, except through philosophy, I suppose, is the direct approach to abstract topics. But poets <coughs> tend to be afraid of big ideas. They tend to uh, be able to approach them only through the water glass or the, you know, the teacup or something. So it's always giving, getting a sense that the stuff around us is... Uh, is speaking a kind of language that you can listen to. And if you pick up on that language, the little things lead to these larger things. It's like, you know, Blake says it about the grain of sand and the universe within and the ocean and a drop of water and that the the macro is always uh, nested in a way in these tiny things. We're going to leave listeners for a second with that thought and take a short break. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is poet Billy Collins. We'll be right back.
We're back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is former U.S. poet Billy Larkin. <laughs> That's <laughs> close. Oh, my goodness. Whatever. I'll just switch it all up. Billy Collins. Philip Larkin. <laughs> we'll call you Philip Larkin. No, I was going to call you Billy Laureate. <laughs> I'm just giving that to the name. I don't know if we know each other that well yet, Ashley. <laughs> just a little much. All right. Well, you Ashley interviewer if Please you're not careful. do. <laughs> Well, I wonder if you would read a bit more from um, your newest book, The Trouble with Poetry and Other Poems. I've picked out the introduction, and you can tell us a little bit about it if you like, or just launch right in. I will. Um, <laughs> I just think I, 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 would, I was going to say a few things about it, but I, um, I'm just going to read it. It's called The Introduction. I don't think this next poem needs any introduction. It's best to let the work speak for itself. Maybe I should just mention that whenever I use the word five, I'm referring to that group of Russian composers who became known as the five, Balakirov, Borodin, that crowd. Oh, and Hypsicles was a Greek astronomer. He did something with the circle. That's about it. But for the record, Grimke is Angela Emily Grimke, the abolitionist. Uh, Imraz is that little island near the Dardanelles. Uh, Monad, well, you know what a monad is. There could be a little problem with Mastaba, which is one of those Egyptian above-ground sepulchers, sort of brick and limestone. And you're all familiar with uh, Helminthology. It's the science of worms. Oh, you will recall that Phoebe Mosey is the real name of Annie Oakley. Other than that, everything should be obvious. Uh, Wagga Wagga is in New South Wales. Rheolite is that soft volcanic rock. What else? Yes, Maranti is a type of timber in tropical Asia, I think. And Rawway is just Rawway, New Jersey. The rest of the poem should be clear. I'll just read it and let it speak for itself. It's about the time I went picking wild strawberries. It's called Picking Wild Strawberries. Thank you. Just makes me laugh, and um, I'll tell you, we started the interview talking about this in this in, um, reading that you gave that I was attended in California, and how it was so different from most readings I go to, and most of the readings that I attend often include so much prelude and preface to the poems that, in fact, I'm not not sure which is the poem and which yeah. is the preface. Yeah, there's a, I uh, I did have someone in mind, and I won't say either his or her name, but um, it is a poet who uh, who tends to glo- provide a lot of glosses before um, he or she reads, and um, it, they, they seem to me like kind of turnstiles that you have to push against to get into the poem. And um, this probably, not that you even mentioned it, I'll mention it, but this probably brings up this whole idea of accessibility, where for me, accessibility is a very, it's a very overused word, I think, and I'm kind of tired of hearing it applied to me and, and anybody else. But um, for me, it's a, to use the word in a, in a more strictly speaking sense, um, accessible just means that you can walk into the poem, you can get in, you can walk in through the front door, and there's a kind of hospitality about the beginning of the poem. It's really the uh, the beginning is kind of like the the ante room where the poet takes your hat and coat, and then you can move into the drawing room later. 
and um, I I guess I have little patience with with poems that are not welcoming in the beginning. I I, I, I love mystery and I love ambiguity and ambivalence and uh, and vaporous thinking um, and <laughs> oblique um, angular um, speculations. But I think in terms of development, if the beginning of the poem kind of welcomes you in as a reader, then the poet can kind of gently close the door behind you and have his way with you. I mean, all sorts of mysterious stuff can come up later, but um, if you can't enter, you know, so um, that's why I was trying to make fun of uh, poems that tend to... uh, um, tend to have a lot of resistance in them. I try to use a very plain diction, you know, very plain vocabulary, and uh, fairly, um, fairly unmodified. Not too many modifiers, but um, in I, t- I take a little. Um, I've taken lessons in jazz piano, and I play a little bit. And in when you play a seventh chord, which is the popular chord in jazz, uh, they always say leave out the fifth. You leave off the fifth note, and then you get a cleaner sound. And the fifth in in writing, I think, is kind of the adjective. Better to leave out the adjective. And then if you if you use a simple palette or a simple vocabulary, then when you want to deploy some you know, longer word like chlorinated or something, it tends to stand out, you know, against the background of that simpler vocabulary. I seem to be answering questions you haven't asked yet. But, but it's lovely. I'm just going to let you go on. This is called anticipatory plagiarism. Right. <laughs> I've been asked these questions before, so I'm just going to answer them now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Glad to hear it. Um, so you're, you're sort of speaking about architecture and your approach to the writing of poetry. Um Last year in a conversation with Paul Muldoon, he talked about this importance of architecture, and if you put up a post there, then you need to put a post here so that there's something for that crossbeam to go across. And you've mentioned this anteroom. There needs to be a way into the poem, and um, you're not so fond of the modifiers, the adjectives. Are there other considerations that you make um, sort of from a strategic perspective in terms of constructing poems? Yes, um I mean, I would go along with Muldoon's sense that, um, I mean, what he's talking about in that architectural metaphor is symmetry um, and balance. Uh, What's very vital, I think, is uh, to see the poem as a set of lines. Um, You know, gasoline comes in gallons and whatever poetry comes in lines. Where, if there were, I mean, a Latin name for poets would be kind of like homo linearium, like we're line making (laughs) creatures. Um, so when I'm writing, I'm trying to um, write strong lines. I'm trying to get every line to have a kind of, you know, two posts to, to uh, hold it up or some kind of balance seesaw effect or something about the line that kind of gives it a little bit of integrity and gives it a little bit of, uh, makes it an entity. But the other thing I suppose I'm thinking about is this idea of development, of just kind of Aristotelian beginning, middle, and an end. Um, and that is a very that's kind of a way of grounding the reader, and you kind of know through transitions the same courtesy that you would show to a reader in prose uh, when we're making a left turn. You know, you, you have a little you put on your directional, and then you don't want the reader to go through the windshield. So um, that sense of pacing and staging the poem, going from one thing to another, um, and finally the poem arriving at some destination. Uh, that's that sort of staging and progressivism is is uh, rather important or something that's on my mind when I'm writing. 
You mentioned the word accessible, which is a modifier that has been um, applied to your poems on several occasions, one or two, perhaps. (laughs) And I I wonder, um, it seems to me that that's a a modifier that's used in contradistinction to a lot of what's going on in contemporary poetry. Um, You mentioned in the title poem to The Trouble with Poetry and other poems. um, I I won't ask you to read that today, but the the sort of punchline there is that the trouble with poetry is that um, in writing it, you're urged to write even more, which is, is sort of a joke, in, in thinking about the broader context of contemporary poetry, because the trouble with poetry there is, well, there are so many troubles with poetry, and folks talk about very different mm-hmm. different kinds of problems. How do you position yourself um, in this world of contemporary poetry? And in the foreground of it, in the <laughs> forefront of it. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> front the of lead <laughs> dog is me. Excellent. Um, <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't really, um, these are not things I give much thought to, to tell you the truth. I mean, people, there, there's this kind of critical um, divisive uh, distinction between, you know, formal poetry and informal poetry or clear poetry and impenetrable poetry. And I'm sort of, um, I guess I'm in the school of clarity, which becomes a, kind of a sore point with some people who... Um, feel that my work is somewhat under-conceptualized or that uh, clarity means uh, simple-mindedness. For me, the poem tends to ideally mix clear things and mysterious things. And I think there's a time to be clear and a time to be mysterious. And um, as I like to put it, knowing what cards to turn over and what cards to leave face down is, I think, important. Poetry that doesn't do much for me is poetry that, in which I don't think the poet knows which is which, or there's kind of a, um, there's a, the wires are crossed. So the poet the poet is either mysterious about something that a card we just need to see to per, to proceed in the poem. So he's um, mysterious about something that should be clear. Um, or then he tries to solve some human mystery in the poem and tries to be clear about something that's going to always be a mystery. So I think um, having a discriminating wisely between those two realms. And then if we go back to this idea of the progress of the poem, uh, for a poem to begin, as someone else said, I think, begin in clarity and end in mystery, that it's a movement from the clear to the ambiguous, from from the open field into the forest. Um, and that's the, that's the way I like poems to proceed. I mean, I want to know, I want everyone to be oriented in the beginning because I want everyone to be disoriented at the end in a way. And I don't see how I can... I think of disorientation as a literary pleasure and um, or defamiliarization, as someone else put it. Um, but I don't see how a reader can get disoriented unless the reader starts out being oriented knowing where you are, and then you can get lost. But if you don't know where you were in the beginning, you can't get a sense of being led. Where you are now. <laughs> yeah, right, being led uh, uh, gently astray yeah. into, into, into areas that only poetry can, can move you into. Now, um, clearly the, sort of the, the discussion about the kind of, um, as you've mentioned a couple of times, in this interview, um, the sort of thinking about what it is that you do as a poet is not nearly so interesting to you as doing what you do as a poet. Um, and you mentioned that sort of death is one of the things that gets you up in the morning if you're a poet. That's kind of what, what it's all about. Um, how, 
do you have a sense of um, arriving at where you are now with respect to your own work over the course of a process? I mean, you're a teacher, so you're working with your students to develop their poems and develop in their um, lives as writers. Do you have a sense of your own um, development as a writer? Did you start from this position of wanting and knowing that you needed an anteroom? Um, or did you, by experiments and hook and crook, arrive at, oh, right, you can't build a house without an anteroom? Oh, uh, yeah, of course it took uh, it took me even longer than most people. I mean, I didn't get a real uh, real book out until I was in my 40s and prior to that I was uh, I was doing what I think you have to do in order to, if you're going to have any chance of having some kind of semi-original voice which is imitation um, it's one of the paradoxes of the writing life um, I think Edward Hirsch points this out in his book about poetry that um, the only way to any hope you have to be original is through uh, imitation and uh, if you imitate enough something will kind of be growing under that slavish imitation um, so I wanted to be you know when I was in high school I was like a junior beatnik I wanted to be Lawrence Ferlinghetti and Allen Ginsberg you know here I am I'm like a kind of a sophomore in a Catholic suburban high school and I wanted to be this homosexual, Jewish, crazy beatnik, pot-smoking, car-stealing, you know, <laughs> pill-popping, bon- bongo-playing. Um, <laughs> but um, in, and you, and have, the, you have a, a line to that effect about Lawrence Berlinghetti, I believe, in one of the poems of your new book. Yeah, I was. I wanted. To, I was like a junior beatnik boy. Um, <laughs> and then I went through it. Then I hit Wallace Stevens in... in College and then graduate school, and that was it. I thought Wallace Stevens was was the end, the bending end, and I just wanted to be. A, Went into insurance. I wanted to be a baby. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to. I started, I started selling policies. I wanted to be a baby. Uh, Wallace Stevens, John. The metaphysicals were very influential in terms of. Um, it was the first the first time I was ever really jealous of a poet. It was when I read John Donne. And I read a particular poem. It's a seduction poem called The Flea, in which um, he, he begins, Mark but this flea, and mark in this how little that which thou deniest me is. And he attempts to seduce this woman on the strength of this metaphor of the flea having bitten the two of them, and their bloods are mingled in the flea's body and all that. And um, I was just smitten by such jealousy. I didn't realize you could be so witty and and also sexy and in the same breath um, and I think that's uh, you know frankly what really drives creativity uh, is is envy so I forget what the question was exactly but I, I don't see myself developing that much though I after I sort of found a way to write I just I think I keep writing kind of in that vein mm-hmm. you know if you're a novelist you have to invent dozens of characters or if you're Balzac hundreds of characters a poet just has to invent one character. Um, if you look at Emily Dickinson, say, or Walt Whitman, basically they invented this character. It's a voice. And you flip open, if you're majoring in death, that is to say English, you flip open an anthology, you, know, you can recognize Emily Dickinson from 50 yards away, and the same with Walt Whitman. Did you recognize that, that voice, that character? Um, so I think I've, not to put myself in the same paragraph with those two, but I've invented some kind of little voice, some little persona, and I'm happy just to let him keep talking. 
Well, we're going to let you keep talking in a minute, but we're going to pause for a short break. This is WCBN FM Ann Arbor. You're tuned into the Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is poet Billy Collins. We'll be right back. This is the Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor, and my guest today is poet Billy Collins. We've been talking about finding one's voice. Um, we've been talking about his new book, The Trouble with Poetry and Other Poems, and uh, the state of poetry. <laughs> I wonder if you'd read from an earlier book. Mm-hmm. I've pulled the American Sonnet out of your book, Sailing Alone Around the Room. Um, I'd be happy to read that. It's called American Sonnet. We do not speak like Petrarch or wear a hat like Spencer, and it is not 14 lines like furrows in a small, carefully plowed field, but the picture postcard, a poem on vacation that forces us to sing our songs in little rooms or pour out our sentiments into measuring cups. We write on the back of a waterfall or lake, adding to the view a caption as conventional as an Elizabethan woman's heliocentric eyes. We locate an adjective for the weather. We announce that we are having a wonderful time. We express the wish that you were here and hide the wish that we were where you are, walking back from the mailbox, your head lowered as you read and turn the thin message in your hands. A slice of this place, a length of white beach, a piazza, or carved spires of a cathedral, will pierce the familiar place where you remain, and you will toss on the table this reversible display, a few square inches of where we have strayed, and a compression of what we feel. I think it's important to write under some kind of condition, you know, so that you're writing within a very limited space. And that's why haiku is so appealing to me. Uh, just the fact that, I'm sorry, it can't be 16 or 18 syllables. You know, you have to be 17. And I always thought that, um, I mean, the sonnet is the kind of classical golden cage in which uh, you're expressive possibilities are severely limited and, and yet severely uh, stimulated but I always thought that the, I like to write postcards and uh, rather than letters and it's like that uh, I forget who it's attributed to but someone said in a PS for, I'm sorry this letter is so long I didn't have time to write a short one in other <laughs> right. words that you know writing a short letter takes thought and concentration rather than just babbling on and I always thought 
um, the little square, the few square inches that you're given in a postcard uh, is like a kind of literary genre that it, uh, if you have to say it in that in that small space, it uh, it sets you thinking a little bit more than if you just rambled on in a long letter. Well, and I wondered, uh, the reason I asked you to read that particular poem was to ask these sort of questions of, of space and um, and to also get, you spend a fair bit of time in Ireland and um, and I'm, oh, that's right, mm-hmm. am, 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 yeah. I, am I right? No. <laughs> I mean, I made that up, but let's yeah. just go with it. Right. Um, so I'm wondering how you think of other poetries um, outside the U.S. and how you think of poetry in the U.S. and this notion of a postcard and of um, of the title of this last poem is American Sonnet mm-hmm. and American Sonnet as a postcard. What? How do you think of American or U.S.? And I put those things in quotes. You can't see them, listeners, but I just did one of these click-click with my fingers. She's been doing that. <laughs> I've been doing it all afternoon. Um, well, without putting anything in parentheses uh, except American, um, I don't. I think I'm more, you know, more like uh, I'm a more f- more of a follower of William Carlos Williams than T. S. Eliot, in that uh, more of an American poet than a kind of Anglo poet. And I never really realized how American my poetry was until I went to Ireland and England and and, and, play, and other parts of the English-speaking world, and uh, realized that you know, eggs over easy doesn't you know doesn't play. Uh, there's a lot of expressions that are very American in idiom, and uh, I, but I, you know, I've taught English all my life, and so I, when I mention Petrarch and, and Spencer, I'm kind of nodding to the fathers of the sonnet in Italy and England, and, uh, and having nodded to them, I depart from them. But it's it's a little like acknowledging your ancestors. It's kind of a nod of acknowledgement or respect or something. This is a little off the mark, but I wanted to write once. I wanted to write a poem about splitting wood because I like it's one of one. Of, it's a real physical pleasure for me to split logs. And um, but I, I kind of knew Frost had done that. Done was, logs. Yeah, he, <laughs> his logs were covered. You know, like he, he's he got it. You know, you can't touch it anymore. And um, but I, I still wanted to write this poem about about splitting wood. So I began the poem with the word frost. It's capitalized because it's the first word in the poem, but it really means frost, that white stuff when it's cold. So the poem begins: Frost covered this a decade ago, and frost will cover it again tonight. The leafy disarray of these woods, blah blah blah. So again, it was like tipping my hat to frost. You don't have to get it to enter the poem, but it's a little like acknowledging um, the the lights that uh, illuminate your poem, because you're always writing in the company. I mean, writing poetry is odd, because you're it's a very solo activity, um, despite the kind of communal MFA workshop spirit that has invaded the country. And yet, at the same time, you're always accompanied by the poets of the past, uh, and your page is kind of lit by these candles of all the past poetry you've read. Would you include for that, would that include for you poets, many poets outside the country, or are, are your forebears predominantly, you mentioned the Beats earlier, you mentioned mm-hmm. um, Wall, Wall Stevens yeah. and... Um, no, I read um, I mean, I read Dijemborska is very important to me, and uh, Pessoa, and uh, um, you know, quite a few South American poets, and uh, uh, Middle Eastern poets, 
uh, and Chinese poetry is uh, quite influential on me in, insofar as it's, so, as it's so clear. Do you think, you, you've mentioned clarity in several different contexts mm-hmm. over the course of this conversation, and one of, in, when you're writing, you're often writing with a diction that is um, a diction that we would have um, in many conversations as opposed to the one that they often have in the English departments, mm-hmm. um, let's say. Because, however, that diction here includes things like over easy, when poems go to England or Ireland or other English-speaking countries, they then have a twist that is sort of like, oh, gosh, I have to look up eggs over easy. How do you feel about your poems as having answer rooms once they leave this English-speaking part of the world and go to another English-speaking part of the world or, furthermore, are translated? Well, that's... um Translation is the greatest honor a poet can have, and, and luckily over the past couple of years my poems have started to be translated. Um, there's one poem that has uh, mentions a glass-bottom boat, and this Italian translator is saying, what is glass-bottom boat? Uh, I mean, so he had to... That's a French accent, actually. Um, <laughs> but he had to say, and so they don't have the term, you know, glass-bottom boat. So he had to say, is a, a boat whose bottom is made of glass, you know, but it doesn't, doesn't carry... What what um, I'm more concerned with the chronological problem than or the concern than the geographical one. I mean, the reason I, I think I use this a fairly obvious diction and and free of jargon and free of contemporary reference is that uh, in my vanity I think my poems might be read in the future, and I don't want to say stuff like cheese whiz or I don't know <laughs> just things that. Hopefully that will be able to be gone. In the yeah, <laughs> right. Or SUV even. I just don't want... Um, actually, the vocabulary in my poems is kind of the 50s vocabulary because I use words like Davenport and Icebox and stuff like that. But um, I guess I, I, if you put in contemporary stuff like Big Mac or something, then you give the poem a very limited shelf life. And um, I'm trying to use a vocabulary that could still be read in the future. Hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about the future. I mean, you're, you're sort of on tour at the moment for, um, you're here uh, in Ann Arbor reading, and um, then I imagine for this new book you'll be in other cities around the country reading. How does that um, jive with your life as a writer? I mean, now this is sort of the public side. This is not the quiet room and the pen and the window. Well, um, it doesn't take that long to write a poem. I mean, I, I, um, I don't want to make it sound too simple, but I always thought, like, not, not to do your work for you, but there's a, some interviewers say to, you know, not to poets, but they would say to someone, how do you manage to balance? That's the way the question begins. How do you manage to balance being a housewife and uh, an explorer and, and still have time to write this cookbook? And if you asked a poet that, your question would be, Mr. Collins, how do you manage balancing writing a short poem every two weeks with doing virtually nothing in between? (laughs) (laughs) And how do you answer? (laughs) (laughs) But that's, that's the poet's life. So, uh, I actually, I flew out to Chicago two, three days ago, I guess, and um, I, I wrote a poem on the plane, which I finished in Chicago, so... so you're done. I can do... I'm two done. weeks off. I, I'm <laughs> done, for the, done for the half a month. Great. Yeah. Well, we are almost done. Time is just about up. I want to thank you so much for joining me. It's been a real pleasure. 
You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN. My guest today has been poet Billy Collins. We've been talking predominantly about his newest book, which is just out. It's called The Trouble with Poetry and Other Poems. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Pleasure is mine. I'd also like to thank our... (laughs) (laughs) Tank is the word for it. I'd I'd like to thank our engineer, Chaz Barrett, for doing such a lovely job. Next week, we will have poet, physician, and international development consultant Roy Jacobstein on the show, so please tune in again next week, and stay tuned to WCBN. (laughs) 